Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Christ of Christianity and assumptions. Assumptions about church doctrine, assumptions about books, assumptions about time and place. We're going to be doing some assumption spotting. If you're investigating something, assumptions are almost always a problem. They can send you off in the wrong direction. They can make you blind to alternatives. Even when there's good evidence that the truth is different to the story in your head. You make big assumptions early on, and it's like a fork in the road that you took at the start of a journey. It might have been right, but what if it was wrong? So, thinking back to that fork again. Jesus Christ, stated as a name, fails to take into account what might have come between Jesus and Christ. Time We have a fairly good idea of when Jesus lived and died. So if we put the word Jesus at around 30 CE, how far back can we push the word Christ and Christianity? During my years as a Christian, there were occasions when I would imagine going back in time to hear Jesus for myself. Somehow going back to first century Galilee and following him around from place to place as he taught the people. As a young Christian, my ideas of this scenario were that Jesus would be pretty much what I expected him to be. I'd recognise him as soon as I saw him and his disciples, of course, and I'd tag along until we all sat down to hear him teach. And as a member of his audience, I would be one of the very few people in the know when he said things that people didn't understand. He might even have given me the odd wink, maybe passing me the odd note with a chapter and verse number to look up in my New Testament. If I had have spoken to people around me, and if they had told me things about the teaching and mission of Jesus that were different to my belief, I might have dismissed them as people who just didn't get it. Normally when you want to find out about something that happened in another time and place and culture, you have the idea that the people who were there at the time are the ones who know the most about it. But not when it comes to Christians and their idea about what was going on at the time of Jesus. Why is that? Why would I have imagined, sitting there in that crowd, that I had a better understanding of Jesus than those people around me? It's because I thought I had a magic book. As far as I'm concerned, sitting there in that audience, the book takes me right back to Jesus in a special way. And my belief in that means I've got inside knowledge that these people around me haven't got because they haven't read the book. They're going to have to wait for it to come out. This is like a waiting period. They've got Jesus without the instruction manual. He's travelling around, doing his thing, teaching the people and all that, but what he's saying, this is not actually it yet. He's not teaching the main message. The Christ concept is the main message, and it's not part of the program yet. I know, because this is Jesus, and I'm a Christian, and I've read the book. 
He's just teaching them some other stuff for now, giving some good advice, some things about the kingdom of God, about being good. In John, he gives some teasers, but he doesn't come out and say it. Imagining actually being there, listening, I'd have to ask the question, why not? Doesn't Jesus have some explaining to do? If the Christian concept of Jesus is correct, here's the situation here in Galilee. Jesus is God, and he's come as a man to die as a pure sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. This is necessary because the essential nature of all humanity is hopelessly sinful. It's a condition that we're all born into, and we can't make amends for the bad things we've done in the sight of God. Although God created us this way, he is angry with us. Our sins separate us from a holy God, and his justice demands that we will be punished eternally. But the good news is, Jesus is going to take this punishment for us. The sacrifice of someone who is pure and innocent satisfies God's requirement for justice. It's called substitutionary atonement, but it doesn't apply to everyone. It's conditional. It only works for Christians, a Christian being someone who believes this. So how could these people believe this when Jesus is not telling them about it? These people who have come out here to hear Jesus, including all the people who make up his following, the people of this time who are actually hearing him teach in person, they're not being invited to become Christians, according to the Gospel accounts as if he can't tell them about the new human sacrifice idea before it happens. But he could tell them. If that's the whole point of his mission, don't these people need to know? Telling them about it before it happens would be an approach known as prophecy, something they're familiar with. Jesus does refer to himself as a prophet, and he says things about what's going to happen. Luke 18.31, quote, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Unquote. Why was this going to happen? According to this narrative, the disciples didn't know because Jesus wasn't telling. Jesus was a teacher, like a rabbi. His disciples were people who had dropped everything to follow him, work with him, and learn from him. This would have been a solemn, mutual agreement. In return, the teacher teaches his disciples. But this says that he was telling them something that they weren't supposed to understand. We're given the idea that he's only telling them enough to keep them confused, that they should have worked it out because it's supposedly written in the prophets, but they're not going to because the meaning is hidden from them. This is not the sort of thing the disciples signed up for. Here's the end of that passage again. Quote, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Unquote. What was he talking about there? 
If he was the Christ, in keeping with the Christian concept, he was talking about the most important part of the story, and the disciples were not familiar with this. Let's go back to the interview with the Reverend and recall some things he said about what makes a person a Christian. So, um, what Jesus has done is not for everybody. It's for certain people who accept it. And what's involved in, in becoming one of those people that accepts it is um, praying that prayer. Is it no, prayer? No, there's what no... Is it that, there's what no, is it that makes a person what, move from... Oh, that was just a practical having example. Having a God that's angry at them. Trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus? Yeah, just saying, just basically saying, yeah, you know what? Trusting in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's it. Um, you may not you may you may not necessarily feel like you know. It, How do you know you're one of the people who trusts in Jesus? That's a great question. I reckon you, for the oddest reason, you. Well, not necessarily. I don't think it's odd, but the rest of the world will think it's odd. You just keep believing that story is true. Okay, the disciples of Jesus don't seem to have believed that story. We're told they didn't understand when Jesus talked about how he was going to die. So whatever reason there was for this, it seems quite clear that they hadn't been told about it. So how could they believe it? They were the followers of Jesus, his very disciples, and they weren't being taught to be Christians. The teaching they received as his disciples was no help when it came to this storyline. The main plot is yet to be revealed, and it's as if Jesus doesn't want to spoil the surprise, the big twist. Yeah. Of course, there is the alternative, that what Jesus taught his followers was in fact it, and he wasn't hiding things. But that's not what we're meant to believe. Alongside being kept in the dark for some reason, the disciples are also depicted as people who are slow to understand, as if they were meant to understand. The author of Luke told us that the meaning of Jesus' death was hidden from them in chapter 18, and then in chapter 24 verse 25 he has Jesus on the same subject and saying to two of his disciples, quote, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, unquote slow to understand what was being hidden from them. It looks like it's a no-win for the disciples, and we can take our pick. Stupid, not in on the secret. It seems we've got both, just to make sure. This is after Jesus' resurrection, and the disciples are still baffled. Then, in chapter 24, verse 45, it says, quote, Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Unquote. So now their minds are opened, but the trouble is, this prophecy doesn't exist in the Hebrew Scriptures. The disciples might have gone to the synagogue to look for it and come back the next day to ask him to open their minds as to where it was. What do you do with this? Imagine the pastor of a church giving a Bible quotation that no one can find. You don't get away with that when you're preaching to people with Bibles. 
This is after the resurrection, but Jesus is still supposed to make sense. It appears that in places where the Christ concept occurs in words ascribed to Jesus, it's incongruous and makes little sense. Mark also has Jesus' disciples confused when he's on the subject of his death. In chapter 9, verse 30, he says to them, quote, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days rise again. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Unquote. Jesus' disciples not understanding right up until the end. This is the message, and what it does is reduce the importance of the teaching Jesus' disciples received in favour of something they weren't told or didn't understand, something that came in later. And the message is reinforced. Here's a few more instances. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, we're told the disciples didn't understand something and their hearts were hardened. John 16, 17 has the disciples saying, we don't understand what he is saying. John 29, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John 12, 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. Here's a good question. Who is telling us this? Who is telling us that the disciples of Jesus didn't know what was going on? Where is this information coming from? Well, it is a bit of a mystery, but one thing is for sure, it's coming from someone. There's an informant here. Someone is telling us that there's a plan that the disciples know nothing about. And this claim is not being made by Jesus. It's being made by a third party. The invisible, unidentified writers of these documents. Here are two assumptions that are made automatically when we read these words. Number one, the disciples did in fact have no idea what was going on. And number two, whoever wrote these passages did know what was going on. And this second assumption is made without a conscious recognition of who these writers could be. So who could they have been? These stories are supposed to have originally come from people who were close to Jesus, the people who were there to see and hear as witnesses. The closest people to Jesus were his disciples, but the narrative here is from someone who is claiming to be in a position to say the disciples were not in the loop, implying that a greater truth was hidden from them. Who was in a position to claim to know more than Jesus' disciples about what he was saying? His mother? His, his manager? What other authority was there? If it was other people among his followers that Jesus was telling secrets to, things hidden from the disciples, wouldn't that be betrayal on Jesus' part? God? That would make sense. God is someone who would know more. But this still requires someone to be inspired to write this. What people were inspired by God to write with such authority? Well, if you've been to a few Christian churches, you know the answer to this one. Anyone. Anyone can claim that God is talking to them. And when people do, how do you argue with that? So this opens things up. Who are these people? What can be known about these mysterious narrators? Well, there are a few things that can be stated here. 
They are contributing narrative to the story after the event, many years after, particularly in the case of the John Gospel. What they believe is different to what the disciples believed. And what they believe is replacing what the disciples believed. There are also some hints in the narrative that tell us a bit more about these writers. Jesus' disciples, the crowd of his followers and the Jewish people in general, are all referred to in the third person in the narrative of the Gospels. It's always they and not we. And this coupled with the derisive nature of this narrative towards the Jews suggests very strongly that we're reading narration that's been written by Gentiles who probably weren't there almost certainly weren't there and didn't have Jesus telling them secrets. But they claim to know things that the disciples didn't know. And what they know about, that the disciples of Jesus didn't know about, seems to be the Christ concept. So we're looking at a gap. A gap between the people that Jesus taught and the people who put pen to paper, as it were, many years later. And on either side of this gap, we have these different ideas about Jesus. If one of the disciples of Jesus really did write the narrative for a gospel, he might have said, We heard what Jesus said, and we followed him. We were alongside him. We understood how his words applied in our culture and setting, and we reckon we're in a pretty good position to say we know what he was talking about. Okay. What I've done so far in this episode is illustrate why the attachment of the term Christ to the name Jesus is a fatal assumption. I think the words fatal assumption capture just how pivotal this point is in our inquiry here. Ignoring this assumption is the end of reason before we even get started. It's ignoring the man who was most certainly different to the picture of him painted for us by the later church. You start with the idea that Jesus was who the church said he was, and you're leaving who he really was behind. Everything that flows from that assumption is in the realm of faith and not reason. And that faith is in the church. So far in this podcast, we've asked the question, what is Christianity? We looked at definitions provided by reference books, where we were told it's all about someone called Jesus Christ. Then we asked the question of a Christian minister, who agreed with this and said that Christ is a title that means the same thing as the word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, he said, and he described what this meant. But Messiah, or Mashiach, is Jewish. So this took us to a synagogue for an understanding of this. There we were informed about the Jewish concept of Mashiach by a rabbi. Roughly the same concept that would have been held by Jews of the first century, which includes Jesus and his disciples. And this concept was entirely different to the Christian concept. We need to stop here to fully appreciate this. The Christian assumption is that this Jewish concept was supplanted with something else, and this happened with Jesus. He identified as a Messiah figure, and then went about a mission that bore no resemblance whatsoever to Jewish expectations, this mission being his role as the Christ. 
Presumably someone was meant to understand what he was doing. I'm going to illustrate this with a story. I'll use an insufficient analogy, simply to illustrate the difference between Mashiach and Christ, and how strange it is to make the Christian assumption. John Lennon. He was English, and he founded a band called the Beatles. John Lennon was assassinated in 1980. He's known by his genuine name and pretty much for the man he was. Everyone knows the Beatles. And maybe in 2,000 years, people will still know the Beatles for what they were. But what if we bring into the story of John Lennon some of the factors from the story of Jesus? We'd need an empire. Initially, I thought America, but America is culturally similar to England and speaks the same language. The Soviet Union was in power at the time of John Lennon, and it was foreign to England like the Roman Empire was to the Jews. So let's say the Soviet Union is our empire. It's still in power, now dominating all of Europe, and will continue for a few hundred years to come. That puts us at an interesting time in this story of John Lennon. His fame is spreading, while at the same time his country's resistance to Soviet rule is about to change things dramatically. As English speakers, we still know him as John Lennon. But right about now, the Soviet Union is going to absolutely annihilate England, obliterate London, and scatter surviving English people so that they will think of nothing but survival for many years to come. That was England, and the England that we once knew is no more. Now we're in another time and place, let's say a hundred years later, somewhere in the USSR, and everyone is talking about Ivan Zuk. Ivan being the Russian translation of the name John, and Zuk being a direct translation of the word beetle. So now take away all modern means of communication, so that the story of John Lennon, who only performed in England, is passed on by word of mouth, and also by a very limited number of documents that are now circulating. Documents written in Russian by anonymous authors. Strange how he was so famous, yet there are only these few accounts about him. Oh yeah, a hundred years after John, there'll be a few others floating around. You never know, there might even be some in English. But now, another 300 years on, and these are the only ones we have, and they've been approved by the Soviet administration. Now, let's look at the meaning of the word Zuk for the majority of fans around the Soviet Union. It's different. Same word, it's just a translation, but the meaning has changed. Important people have been working out what Zuk means. Back in England... The Beatles were a rock and roll band. Zook has nothing to do with rock and roll. But it has been derived from the letters of an Englishman who said he knew the band. So people still say that Ivan Zook is the Beatle of England. But who really knows what that means? What is a Beatle? Well, we know what they told us Zook means. And Ivan said he was a Zook. And a zook is a beetle, so that explains it. You'll believe it if you have faith in God. We know those English people have got different ideas, but 
They didn't recognise Ivan for who he was, so we don't listen to them. This is now an issue of Zookianity. It's taken me a long time to write this episode. It's been difficult to maintain a direct line of straightforward and logical thought without veering off with tangents and trying to say too much. There are too many options, too much information, and sifting through it, identifying the next logical step, has been a lot harder than I expected. In a way, it would be easier if I knew nothing about Christianity, because I'm asking questions that I think I know the answers to. So my thought processes are not those of an inquirer. I've got detailed answers, but the simple answers are elusive. It's easy to question things, not so easy to identify what can be fairly stated as a fact that can serve as a stepping stone to establish and then move on from. But every now and again, I come up with something that I think can be stated with certainty. I've made one of those statements. Jesus is different to the church's concept of him. That's logical. You don't need to back that one up. You'd have to be fanatically religious to not recognise that the religious concept of him that developed after his time is not the same as who he really was and what he was really about. Here's another one. Actually, I've got a few in succession here. The second one is in answer to our question, what is Christianity? It's an answer that I think is the kernel, the shortest and most succinct answer to the question. Christianity is Christianity. It is the belief that in the Christ concept, the Church has accurately described Jesus. So it's a belief in Jesus the Christ, in accordance with Church doctrine. The third statement is a therefore that follows from the first two statements. Therefore, Christianity is not necessarily belief in the actual man known as Jesus. What would belief in the actual man known as Jesus look like? Well, that would be another subject. This podcast is about Christianity, which is a belief system that Jesus contradicts when he teaches his followers with teaching like the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where people are welcomed into God's kingdom due to their good actions rather than their sins being paid for by his coming sacrifice. Quote, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me, I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Unquote. In Luke 10.25, Jesus is asked what a person must do to receive eternal life. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. 
Jesus firstly pointed to the Ten Commandments and then illustrated his answer with the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story of a man doing something in response to another's need. Another time, when Jesus was asked about how to get eternal life, he said, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. When Jesus is teaching the people like this, with words that make sense and fit in their Jewish setting, he doesn't sound like he's teaching Christians. This might be the sort of teaching his disciples received, before he's reported to have suddenly changed his mind in the last days and given no explanation. But then, there's the odd time when, all of a sudden, he does teach Christians. There's a passage in the book of John where Jesus speaks to a Jewish crowd in a way that would have made absolutely no sense to them. But it was going to make sense to Christians, other people, at another time. From John 6.48, quote, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your answers ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Unquote. What would these people have made of what he was saying? It sounds like Jesus is saying, You should eat me. And these people in the crowd say, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? As if to invite a more metaphorical or spiritual interpretation. But then Jesus seems to then go on to say, No, really, I mean you should eat me. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. The one who feeds on me will live. If a first century Jewish audience heard this teaching, how could they have thought anything else? Presumably the idea is that they're being taught something they're supposed to understand, or that is at least possible for them to understand. What precedent or preconceived idea or prophecy or anything, what could they have looked to to give them an alternative to what Jesus is apparently saying? The Jewish people are familiar with animal sacrifices, but what reason would they have had to think that Jesus was saying that a human sacrifice was now required by God and that he was it? And if this is it, if Jesus is now talking about the main message, why does he introduce it in such a weird way, saying things that are strange and foreign to these people as if he's playing with them for the benefit of the reader? But even for people who are familiar with this Christ concept, this is a very strange and cryptic way to come out with it. No matter how you read the Bible, here are some points that are quite clear. 
some more statements that can be made. This is the Christ concept being expressed in the Gospel of John. It's a teaching about the Eucharist or communion. And these people didn't know about it because it's a Christian rite that didn't exist yet. These words ascribed to Jesus are completely out of context. For the Church, the Eucharist is symbolic of Jesus' sacrifice for sins, where Christians take bread and wine in remembrance of this and as a symbolic act of receiving. A later Christian church dispute was about whether or not the bread and wine actually turned into the flesh and blood of Jesus. This passage has Jesus affirming the, the orthodox position that says it does. So the audience that this teaching within John is for couldn't have been the Jewish people who were with Jesus in Galilee. The audience is later Christians, and the teacher is not Jesus. It's the author of this document called John. He's telling us the Christ concept is what true followers of Jesus need to believe, even to the point where participation in the Eucharist is essential. The Christ concept has been put into the mouth of Jesus here. That's what we're looking at. This can be stated without reservation for at least this one occasion. And the author of John has another message for us. He wants us to believe that Jesus' followers were not really his followers. They were a bunch of ignorant, bad people. All except the disciples. He keeps them, but he doesn't want us to think too highly of them. It's fair to say at this point that people may not have believed in the Christ concept as far back as the time of Jesus. If this was a debate, the question for the debate could be, did Jesus teach that he was the Christ of Christianity? I've looked for evidence in the documents that might answer this question, and what I've found is in the negative. This might be because I don't personally believe that he did teach this, but I might not believe that he did because I no longer start with that assumption. And when the assumption is no longer there, maybe there isn't much to substantiate this claim of the church. Well, maybe there is. Am I being fair? Where's the argument for the other side, you might ask? Well, I admit, there was a time when I would have put together a good argument for the Christian position, but it seems I'm no longer capable of doing a good job of that. I invite any Christian out there to put forward a concise argument for the affirmative and send it in as a voice message. Go to anchor.fm forward slash shaking Christianity and click on the message button. But failing that, I'll have a go at looking positively for the Christ concept as far back as we can go. But I'm going to tease out the evidence in whatever direction it takes me. Okay, so we've just seen that the Christ concept is in the book of John. How far back does that take us? There's a general consensus among historians that John, in the recension that's come down to us, was written last out of the four Gospels. Some of them say late in the first century, more of them say early in the second. In John, the Christ concept is not outlined, but there are references to it, like the passage about the Eucharist that we've looked at. The Eucharist is symbolic of the Christ concept, Jesus' sacrifice for sins. The dispute about whether the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist 
is seen in a letter of the early church father Ignatius of Antioch to the Smyrnaeans, written around the same time as the book of John. In chapter 7 of this letter, Ignatius disagrees with people who, quote, abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, unquote. So Ignatius believes in the Christ concept, and he is a very early church father. A bit later, about the middle of the 2nd century, chapter 66 of Justin Martyr's First Apology is another early reference to the Eucharist. Quote, and this food is called among us Eucharista, the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true, and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration, and who is living as Christ has enjoined. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive this, but in the like manner as Jesus Christ our Saviour, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so likewise we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Unquote. A little bit hard to follow, but the word transmutation here refers to the bread and wine of the Eucharist actually becoming the flesh and blood of Jesus for Christians to consume. It's an extraordinary claim, and one that Justin Martyr asserts fully, whereas the earlier Ignatius didn't rub it in so much. But he did say it. The Eucharist is the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Okay, so if we're going back in time, tracing the Christ concept, we've got Justin, and then we've got Ignatius, and then we can go back further to a document called the Didachi, which also makes reference to something referred to as the Eucharist. Didachi chapter 9, and it has been translated with some old English. Quote, Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. First concerning the cup, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant, which you madest known to us through Jesus, thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made us known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills, and was gathered together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Unquote. The Christ concept is not there. The word Christ is there, but the concept is gone. This is where it would go if it's what these people believed, because that's what the Eucharist or communion is all about in Christianity. But here the Eucharist has a different meaning, actually quite a light-hearted one. It sounds more like a toast than a sacrament. The origin of the Eucharist is meant to be whatever Jesus did with his disciples at a Passover meal, and then after that the practice was repeated by his followers. As a document that describes this practice, the Didachi is an early repetition of what Jesus might have said at that Passover meal, and it's not about his sacrifice for sins. The evolution of a concept 
Is that what we're seeing here? Is this a peak at a much less evolved Eucharist? Then in chapter 14 of the Didache it says, quote, But every Lord's day gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who is at odds with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord, in every place and time offer to me a pure sacrifice. Unquote. Here the sacrifice referred to is made by the supplicant and not by Jesus. This the Jewish people would have understood. Didachi chapter 4, quote, Be not a stretcher forth of the hands to receive, and a drawer of them back to give. If you have anything through your hands, you shall give ransom for your sins. Unquote. In Christianity, Jesus pays the ransom for our sins. Here, those who do good are doing that for themselves. The Didachi also places the teaching of Jesus as primary. Chapter 1, quote, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two. The way of life, then, is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself, and do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you, and pray for your enemies, and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same? But love those who hate you, and you shall not have an enemy. Unquote. Do not the Gentiles do the same? This is a Jew writing to Jews. The Christ concept is absent, even contradicted, but at the same time, there's Christian terminology here. This seems to be a document that was copied and used in early Christian churches, but it hasn't had Christian doctrine added to it. The Christian churches that it circulated amongst have resisted the temptation to make it Christian. They've respected this document and therefore respected its source. It's a far more obscure document than the book of John and has only terminology to identify Christian copyists. John, on the other hand, went right through the system and out the other side as an orthodox, canonized New Testament book. But still, there's plenty of reason to believe that John is built around Jewish source material, which I'll refer to a bit later. These documents have layers. And two definite points can be made about these layers. The ones on top are Gentile, Christian and anti-Semitic. And the deeper layers are, of course, Jewish. This is why dating them is a tricky process for historians. They're not just dating the earliest known copy of a document. They're also dating material within this copy that the author was working from. And one of the ways they do that is by looking at what people believed at various times, anchoring these beliefs to more datable documents like the letters of the early church fathers. So we know that Ignatius and Justin Martyr believe in the Christ concept. They are Christians and they are not Jews. They represent Christian communities of the early to mid-2nd century. These communities and their beliefs are well documented. From now on, I'll use the term Christian to refer to believers in the Christ concept, 
and I'll use the term Gentile to refer to non-Jews. So these church fathers represent Gentile Christians, and the earliest of the church fathers are all Gentile, as far as I know. Jesus was a Jewish teacher in the early first century, and he had a Jewish following. This was a Jewish movement. Our question is, can we trace the Christ concept back to the people involved in this movement? What did these people believe? Reading the book of John takes us to about a hundred years later. Church tradition says that this is the story as told by a disciple of Jesus. But if John, the disciple of Jesus, was the original storyteller behind this tradition, he certainly wasn't the writer of the document, the one that made it into the New Testament. In this document, the Jews as a people are put down and depicted as being against Jesus. Not just the chief priests or the Herodians or the teachers of the law, but the Jews in general. They're all seen as the bad people, and there's no real recognition of a Jewish following of Jesus, even though the Christian claim is that this following was the nascent church. And in the mind of the writer, Jesus is not really Jewish. He speaks as a Gentile at times. In chapter 8, verse 56, in his reply to the Jews, who all seemed to want to kill him, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. A Jew would say, Our father Abraham. Small indicators within the narrative, but they reveal the position of the writer. In chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God? Why would a Jew say to other Jews, Your law? when he's referring to the law they all recognise. And then indications of a Jewish layer can be identified, with Jesus switching his perspective in chapter 4 of John, where he's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. He counts himself among the Jews. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 22, which places the Jews inside his camp. John also shows accurate knowledge of the geography and features of Galilee and Judea and of Jewish society and customs before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This is a document that looks like it originated with a Jewish community. There's evidence for this. And there's also very good evidence that it was later transcribed and altered by Gentile Christians. It's a document that does have the Christ concept. The question is, who put it there? And this is the question for Christianity. Who put it there? Because this is where Christianity starts. The Christ concept either came from Jesus or it came from another authority that established it as preeminent among a body of believers that substantiated this authority and this belief. In the next episode, we'll continue with our tracing of the Christ concept, going back further in time to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, where the Christ concept also makes an appearance. In them, Jesus turns the Passover meal into the first Eucharist. And there's also one often quoted verse, always to be found in even the smallest of concordances, where Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. As soon as I find some good evidence that Jesus taught that he was the Christ of Christianity, I intend to make the most of it. Thanks for listening.